0: Welcome to Vemco Chats, the first-ever podcast series by Vemco Group. This new podcast will take you on a journey through the world of customer data and the undeniable force it is within the world of retail. Our first guest is none other than neuropsychologist and founder of Neurons Inc., Thomas Zwege Ramsey, whose new book, Kobian or in English, The Buyer's Brain, recently hit the market on October 14th. Thomas is among the world's leading experts in neuroscience, working to demonstrate how our brain drives the way we make decisions. He's helped huge businesses across the globe, including Facebook, Google, and Spotify, to name a few. In this podcast, we discuss something that is a great passion to both Thomas and Vemco Group, and that is predicting and understanding customer behavior. We hope you enjoy. I would love if you could start off in your own words to describe yourself, your passions, and yeah, basically the idea behind the company, Neurons. Mm -hmm.
1: Sure. Um, Where to start? Uh, I think that uh, (laughs) it's a long way to get to this point, right? So I think that to make that uh, kind of shorter, um, it all starts with my interest in trying to understand the human mind. So first of all, how does the mind work? How does the brain work? Uh, you know, as a psychologist, my background is in psychology and neuropsychology. I had the uh, opportunity to work with uh, patients and try to understand how brain lesions and brain disorders would affect the human mind. Mm-hmm. Right? So that means that if you have a certain type of disorder, uh, certain parts of your mental capacities go away. If it's memory, language, attention, working memory, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of my foray into this. And uh, while I did that, I, I really tried to study consciousness at the same time. So if you look at the brain, there's so many things that goes on in the brain, but there's nothing in the brain scan that tells us that we're conscious mm-hmm. um, initially. Yeah. So it's like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. So that was, my, that was my question, so to speak. And I've just been cur- curious for a long time. And just my approach was just to follow that curiosity, basically. Um, That led me to clinical work. I did my PhD in neuroscience and neuroimaging and eventually did a lot of studies where I think we kind of turned a few stones in trying to understand the human mind. So what came out of that is that we now have a slightly better understanding of what the human mind is. We have a better understanding of what consciousness is and what the brain does to bring that about. Mm -hmm. And um, that could be, that could be fine. But I, I wanted to do a bit more. I wanted to say, you know, now what? What does that even mean when we tell people about this? How do people respond? Um, what is the meaning of all of this? You know, um, how does that inform the way we are making decisions? How does that inform the way that we are doing legal? Um, you know, how we, you know, perceive uh, culpability and, you know, people making bad decisions, for example. So I started to to discuss the the ethical. Um, consequences of neuroscience because neuroscience basically goes in and challenge, challenges a lot of the assumptions we have about humanity so i started a blog back in 2005 ish and called brain ethics started to discuss all these different matters um it got really popular and then i got an invite from cbs one of the professors there to start a collaboration and uh, to say okay how can we use this uh, neuroscience to understand more realistic behaviors. So instead of studying mm-hmm. behaviors in the lab, how can we study behaviors like consumer behavior, like managerial behavior, um, decision-making in, in those contexts? So I did my postdoc and, you know, got a professorship at the Copenhagen Business School to study uh, decision-making kind of in everyday situations. Yeah, And I've done that ever since. Uh, I think that what we ended up with was this center of, be- uh, center of decision neuroscience, as we call it. Where we had tons of researchers going about studying anything from how we perceive art to how we make uh, decisions on buying items. So my passion, so to speak, has been to try to understand the human mind in practice, so to speak, how the mind works, but in everyday settings, not kind of as an, not just as an academic exercise, yeah. but to make it relevant for people. Yeah. So that's kind of that, that kind of led to the next thing, which is kind of the forming of my company, which is. You know, a whole chapter in itself that we can talk about of course
0: yeah and and i think that one of the main things about your company is that you have made a tool which enables you to measure this so you can actually see it uh, as i mean before you as you started saying you couldn't actually measure all these mechanisms that were going on so you've made all of these amazing tools uh, i think i read that you had like four specific tools one of them is called predict mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Uh, could you tell a little bit more about how that works and in which scenarios you would use that?
1: Sure. Um, so if you roll a little bit back and say, you know, what, what, how did it all start? We there was a realization that if you take marketing, for example, we know that as opposed to what many people, or many of your listeners, listeners might think, um, marketing hasn't solved anything at all. You know, it's still a big yeah. problem. There's the old saying that. Half of my marketing budget is wasted. I just don't know which half it is. Yes, it's still it's still true. Yeah. Right. So it means that when marketing goes out and using like surveys and interviews and focus groups, it's not really predicting how people in the market will respond. So there's a lot of kind of misalignment and, and loss of information there. Mm. Um, neuroscience and psychology has demonstrated again and again that, you know, how we respond emotionally and cognitively um, can predict exactly how people will behave. So we showed several times that we can use the brain scanner to predict what people will choose several seconds later. We can use that to predict market responses. But the problem is that these responses, they take a long time. It's costly. It's like you you need to measure people. You need to uh, have a lot of statistical tools at your disposal. You need, as a client, you need to understand what's going on as well. So although the company started that way, so we did a lot of kind of consultancy work, In 2018-19, we realized that we could do better than that. We were sitting on basically a gold mine, that we had tons of data. We could start using machine learning and AI to see can we actually use some data to predict, you know, automatically predict these things. So we first looked at um, eye tracking data to see, you know, where people are looking. And we gave an AI model, we trained AI models basically to see, you know, to, to get all those data and what we came up with was a model that could accurately predict exactly where people would look. So this means that instead of now running an eye tracking study that would take you know, weeks, for example, before we get a response, an AI could do the same thing in 10 seconds. So that's kind of the big leap. That's and amazing. for a fraction of a cost. So, so this is kind of a game changer for a lot of companies, for example.
0: Is this only or primarily online or is it also in physical uh, environments?
1: This is, a, so we have trained the model on a gazillion different types of, okay. so it's, you know, ads on different platforms, it's websites, it's a separate model for videos uh, as well, we have, you know, for packaging, yeah. we have it for retail environments, so the, the AI, if you take it, you can work on a phone, for example, you take, bring it to a store, take a picture of a an aisle uh, or a shelf, and you get a heat map for that. It shows you which are the products that are most likely to be paid, paid attention to. Okay. And which are the ones that are most likely to be ignored. And that is an accurate prediction of how people actually perceive the shelf.
0: Okay. I think that that's, I mean, pretty similar, you know, at, at Vemco, we also look into data and how data can help, especially in physical stores, how data can help the business owners make a better experience for the customer and in turn also get a better business for themselves. What would you say is one of the primary things that could influence consumer behavior and things that you could see a pattern in when you look at heat maps or is it placement of product or uh, and what are the differences between online versus physical stores? Mm. So I think that
1: the way that we realized when we look at kind of a, the, this cross-disciplinary field of psychology, neuroscience and economics, we've seen that instead of conceiving consumers, you know, thinking about consumers making decisions like, you know, they go out, they you know, collect information, they have very well-defined preferences and the weigh those information up against their preferences and they, they make up a kind of rational choice, if you like. Instead of that model, we see that... Um, we are making decisions constantly, every sec- second there's basically a, you know, a, um, a choice micro. about what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to, where to go, where not to go, what to think about, what to not think about. And we call these micro decisions. So that means that when you as a consumer are making certain choices, there are several kind of steps. We call this kind of four power model. So we say um, attention. So what are you paying attention to? What are you ignoring? The second is emotional responses. So what are you responding you know, Are you positive? Are you uh, aroused? Are you negative? Uh, are you you know, neutral, so to speak? The third is cognitive responses. So are you understanding what's going on? Are you you know, keeping it active in your mind? And the fourth step is memory. So, well what is the likelihood that you will remember the brand or the ad or the product or whatever afterwards. So if you think about those four steps, it's really hard for you to ask people, you know, just, you know, do yeah. you pay attention to this? Yes or no? That becomes more like a memory task. But if you have the right, uh, the right tools for it, so that would be traditionally be eye tracking, and EEG, brain monitoring, for example, then you can measure those things. But what we have done instead is to take the next step is to use those data to train models to actually predict now what we're going to put people uh, see, how will they respond emotionally? That's coming very soon. To what extent are they actually understanding the messaging that you give them, and are they likely to remember it afterwards? So that means that instead of doing this bigger uh, measurement, so to speak, uh, over weeks, we can do this in a few seconds now. And that becomes like the tool that you have at your disposal. So you can imagine for a company, Instead of, you know, typically they only re- re- kind of have the budget for this. Yeah. It's like 30,000 euros at least yeah. for doing the study, right? Now you can get for a fraction of the cost, you can do this. Yeah. Now you can de- get these analyses. And that typically what we call kind of front loads. It means that you can do this earlier than you normally would do. Yeah. So that's part of your design process. If you have a web design or a packaging design, you just use these tools again and again and again to optimize your design more and more, Yeah. Right? So that's what we're seeing that people are doing. And this means that when you are communicating online or in a physical store, if you have packaging, for example, in a physical store or in a uh, digital store, it's a very different environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to adjust your design to that. And if you don't have the t- tools at your disposal, what typically happens is that you have the same packaging, which might not really work online, but you, it works well in the store, yeah but then it's a suboptimal either way.
0: Yeah.
1: What we're seeing is that people are designing their packaging, both so either the packaging itself or how they present the package, Mm -hmm. depending on the context, if it's digital or physical store.
0: Do you feel like there is one of these, let's say four uh, types, not, I mean, not saying that all of them are based on emotions, but do you feel like it's easier to impact the emotion part or the cognitive part, or are, are they just like totally related or could you pick one out and say this is easierly influenced than the other
1: ah that's a good question i think that emotions is always on so your, your emotional responses are always on we are constantly evaluating um you know other people other products where we are the context there's a constant kind of evaluation process going on Cognitive responses tend to be more kind of later, so to speak. You mm-hmm. need to mobilize your cognitive responses. So, But they also tend to be automatic, some of them. So if I, for example, give you a particular brand, it could be Volvo, for example. So if I say Volvo to you, in your mind, you will have some automatic associations. Some of them might be emotional, and other will be more factual. Yeah. like safety or boring or whatever. Yeah, right? so, yeah so it exactly. Be, yeah, exactly. So, so the, you could have, just by saying a word, you can trigger those kind of associations yeah. in your mind. Right? So that means that, that those evaluations and associations are constantly latent in your mind. Mm-hmm. And I think that being able to measure those things and how they change over time, is a really kind of a new thing that is now being automa- uh, more automatic, so to speak, and more available to companies. And I think yeah. that's, that's kind of a big uh, game changer.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think that many companies are not actually even, I mean, not aware of the fact how important this aspect is. Because, I mean, if you ask, let's say, uh, a business person who is at the top, if you ask him to argue, of uh, why did he purchase something? I don't think his argument would necessarily be that it's based on emotion. It would be something else. But I think these mechanisms that happen behind all of these decisions, I mean, that's uh, also something you write about in your book, as I could see um, what kind of aspects influence our will to purchase. Sometimes a product could be more expensive, but we will still be able to, I mean, we would want to buy it because Mm. it has some kind of prestige or something, some underlying meaning behind it. Um, And I think that's also the the case with these product placements. I mean, it's not the same if it's an online placement as it is in a physical store or... um, And that's also, I mean, uh, an interesting aspect of all of this. Uh, How do we impact uh, consumer behavior in a physical store? Uh, Contra online Mm. Um, what kind of questions do you think business owners should ask themselves as being important if they want to like take the consumer or customer experience to the next level
1: that's a great question I think that the first thing to do is test you know I think that it's very easy to become very obsessed about certain ideas that you might have that you know this will work and you know I've read about this or there's some kind of divine inspiration for my package or whatever <laughs> it is right um but test i mean try it out so you now this is why we are creating the tools that we have it's like first order of uh you know the first thing you need to kind of consider is to you know try stuff out yeah i do say does it actually does it actually work as you're supposed to and what we see very often is that when, regardless of whether the um, the material you're presenting is in a physical store or in a digital store, is that people might have very kind of explicit or implicit ideas about what works and what doesn't work. And you know, if you look at the design process uh, in companies, it's typically around a kind of round table discussion at the end of the day. Yeah. It's like, and whatever, you know, if the, desi- the chief designer or the CMO or the CEO comes up with a story that I, I like this one, that becomes the story. That's, that's the choice, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that having these tools available helps kind of restructure that and inform the discussion. Because what very typically happens is that you can have this roundtable discussion and the CEO says, I want this one because I like it, because I like the red in it, right? Yeah. Then you can say, fine, you like it, that's good, but it's not garnering any attention. Yeah. Yeah? You know, compared to the others, it has 30% less attention. That's a huge informative kind of input, right? So I think that what we see is that independent of the context, that these tools inform the decision much more and kind of guide the decisions. The second is that when you're comparing digital to physical stores, there are contextual differences, right? If you are in a physical store, typically much more noise, there's actually much more going on in the store. Um, the other thing is that in a digital store, it depends on whether you're on the phone or on a computer. Uh, If you're on a phone, typically a lot of people have notifications and we know that just by grabbing a phone, it doesn't even need to be your own phone, we see that people's mental bandwidth is going up by 20-30%, which means that you're more easily stressed Mm -hmm. by using a phone. This means that whatever you're watching on your phone, you are less tolerant to have information. So if you have a, a product that requires you to explain what's going on, you know, you have to explain whatever ingredients, whatever it is, and you want people to read it. If people read that on the phone, they're not likely to read it or understand yeah. it or remember it. If they do it in the store, they actually have more time, and it's a you know, it's a tactile yeah. thing as well. So this you have to design for the senses and the environments that you have. Uh, yeah. So so that's you know, again, you have to try it out, test yeah. things. So.
0: So you wouldn't say there is one like specific tool or thing that could provoke or have a special impact on the way consumers behave online and in physical stores. It's just more a matter of testing things out. Well,
1: in general, I would say that uh, digital stores, they, they are more visual, Yeah. first of all, much more visual. You actually lose the tactile sense most of all. Yeah. Um, you know, Yes, you can have some scrolling and maybe some tactile feedback when you're scrolling, typically not. You don't really have the odor. Even though it's in packaging, It still is an odor around you. There might be, you know, odors on the package. It's a sound when you hold a package. You know, imagine you know uh, potato chips. Yeah. Just the bag in itself has a very crispy sound to it. So you can design things in the physical environment that you can never do in a, uh, in, a in a digital environment. So that means that you need to reshift, kind of refocus your design exercise when you're in a digital environment. Mm-hmm. There might be some triggers that you can trigger. You know, maybe um, maybe certain types of presenting your package online even makes you feel, almost like hear the crackling. Yeah. So there are certain ways you can trigger those things, but you have to design for it. You have to think about these things. But in the physical store, you can do that much more directly and build that into the product.
0: Yeah. It's just it's just interesting, because if you think about it, like. Uh, In in some kind of a basic principle, you would think that when you have an environment where you as a consumer can touch things and have a better sense of the environment and feel less stressed, Mm. that people are more likely to buy stuff online still because it's. I don't know if it's because it's easier or more convenient or is that a tendency that has happened because of the time we're living in or like this shift of, of being, we live in a fast paced world so we don't have time to go visit these stores and we only do if it's rainy mm. um, so you know all of this data can also help like for for example a mall is very popular when it's rainy because yes. people don't want to be outside and also online shopping, would you say that it has become some kind of um, a comfort zone, maybe? Uh, I mean, in the light of everything that happened with COVID and now this current situation as well, where people are like more hesitant to buy stuff. Can you see some some patterns in in the shift of behavior based on the data collection you have made? Or
1: Yeah, um, definitely. I think that it's... It's convenience, and yeah. I think that a lot about business inconvenience. And there's a kind of a couple of terms that is relevant from this, you know, the industry I'm working in is is the concept of friction and flow. So you can imagine that friction is when you, let's imagine that you go to an online store and all of a sudden you need to click through a lot of different things before you actually can purchase. That's annoying. It's really annoying to you, right? Yeah. So that means that that's what we can call friction points for you. You create some friction, which is actually a negative experience for you. Typically, it's the other way around. Typically, is that if you have to physically go to a store, you have to find the product, you have to go to the checkout, you have to pay, and then you have to go back home again. Instead of just going online, finding your product, checkout, you're done, right? Yeah. That's friction and flow. You know, you know, so friction being the physical store and flow being the the, the online store, right? Mm-hmm. So what we see very often is that that that. Is a huge contributor to how we are making decisions, and I think that the COVID um, pandemic basically meant that we had a huge shift to online purchasing. So beyond, you know, beyond just that, uh, online purchasing is easier. It become more became more kind of readily available for for people. So they become became more used to purchasing online as well. So it's a kind of a habitual change as well. Um, what we see is that in terms of uh, mm. in times of uncertainty and you know, ambiguity, so like now for yeah. example, we have financially we have the whole Ukraine issue, we have a maybe a kind of brewing pandemic again, I, we don't know, yeah. I think it's still uncertain, what happens is that even though that does not have anything to do, if I'm buying a Coca-Cola mm-hmm. my uncertainty will still impact the way I'm choosing products, mm-hmm. so if I'm uncertain, I tend to be you know, even more sensitive to friction. So if there's anything online that makes it harder for me to check out, I am much more likely to leave that page altogether. Yeah. Just because I'm in this mood, right? Mm-hmm. So understanding the mood and the mind states that people are in is really important. Um, and I think that what we see again and again is that when people are in this kind of state of you know uncertainty uncertainty is the worst state the brain can be in if you're fearful you are fearful about something practical something you can point to if you're uncertain you know ambiguous situation the brain really responds negatively to that because it's it's undetermined and that's the worst state you can be in so that typically anything that costs you more than a split second in a decision people are going to leave so so that means that in times of uncertainty as a you know, as a brand owner, as a product owner, you need to make things and choices much more easy than you have tried before. So that's kind of how we are influenced basically.
0: Yeah. How would you say, or what advice would you give to business owners in terms of them changing their strategy towards the consumers to make them more likely to buy this or to ease that decision process in the brain? Is there anything they could do to like make this an easier decision, let's say, if you're hesitant if you want to buy something or as a consumer because you are in a state of like if you, if fight or flight or i don't even know what yeah. what you could call it so is yeah, there anything you could do like as a as a brand owner business i, owner? I think
1: the whole kind of micro decision uh, element is important here and it's um we did a lot of work for uh the social media industry. So we work for all the big, you know, social media companies and uh, also the organization behind it, the Mobile Marketing Association. And one of the studies we did a couple of years ago uh, was to challenge, you know, basically the assumption that ads had to be on a social media feed for three seconds before they actually work. We turned. It turned out that they work within the first second, you know, and actually people are leaving after three seconds. So that means that you have one second to actually convey a message. Um, so that became like a hashtag you know one second strategy. So I think you know brand owners, designers, product owners, they need to think about their one second strategy, which is horrible to think yeah. about, but you have one second to convey your message. So if you have to prioritize your message, you can't you can't possibly make people read a lot of stuff. You, and, and I think that the other thing we need to make sure is that we can't use metaphorical language. We can't ask people to kind of connect the dots in a complex message. We need to just provide people with clear information within one second that can be decoded within one second and then you can give them more information afterwards because if you have their interest and grab their interest in one second then they are willing to spend more time with you so to speak and explore your product and your message but if you can't convey that in one second you can just forget about it right so i think that's the first line of defense yeah now consider your first second strategy if that's on social media if that's on packaging whatever it is
0: That's really a really short time span. (laughs) It is.
1: There's a lot of stuff happening in the brain within one second, right? So you can put it this way, 50 milliseconds. That's how quickly we, you know, if you present uh, a dot on the screen for 50 milliseconds, that's actually long enough for you to see it. Yeah. So that means that beyond that, you know, it takes half a second, less than half a second for you to understand the message. So that means that a one second is actually in the in the timeline of a brain processing. One second is actually quite a you know quite a lot. Yeah, and you can imagine this that when you're walking down the street, you're constantly decoding you know people that you meet, uh, signs on the street. You're constantly evaluating that. That takes much less than one second. Yeah. So. And this is the mind state that we as brand owners and managers and, you know, product owners and designers, we need to keep in mind that people are not really that interested in your product. They're not really that interested in your ad. So you need to be relevant to the right people within one second. So I think that's one thing to keep in mind.
0: That's really, really interesting. And that's like really, uh, yeah, I know. I mean, understand completely the processes that happen In it's based on experience and everything you experience in your life based on culture and everything. I mean, that's also why branding is as as powerful as it is. I mean, if it's encoded in people's like memory, yeah. you would associate it with something or a, a memory or a, and we did uh,
1: we did some studies uh, a few years ago as well. We tested how you know what is the effect of brands that you have a strong relationship to? So let's say you're a brand that is uh, a leading. Uh, in your industry. So you're the the top dog, so to speak, right? Uh, What we've seen is that if people have a very strong relationship, kind of emotional connection with your brand, that could be both positive and negative. But if it's a very strong relationship, people see your brand faster, they recognize it faster, they take your message and read the message much faster, and they have an emotional response to that even faster within that first second. Mm -hmm. So this means that if you now are a top dog brand, if you're a very strong dominant brand, in the industry you are, then you could you can focus on that. You can use the brand as part of your message first because it's going to be recognized very soon. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are an underdog, you know, if you're a newcomer to an industry, you need a different strategy. You need to kind of consider how, you know, what are the trigger words that people tend to focus on and then you introduce your brand afterwards. Yeah. So there's a different strategy. What we also see is that if you have a very strong brand You should focus on making people look at your brand before they look at the price. Look at the brand, look at the product and then the price. Because then people's price sensitivity is actually much lower. They're much more willing to offer the time. Price is just kind of a a cost. Yeah, annoying. It's it's, it's like an energy. It's like if you you have a very strong relationship to something, then you're more willing to spend more energy on that, right? Price is just energy, so to speak. So that means that if you're willing to spend more energy, you're also willing to spend more money on mm-hmm. that product, right? This is why we see that brands like you know, Apple, for example, we see that for you know fashion brands, we see that as well. People are much more willing to spend spend money on buying it if they have a very strong relationship with a brand. If you are an underdog, unknown brand, you need a very different strategy. Then you can, for example, focus on the price first and then the product and then the brand. Yeah. But it depends on your position.
0: Yeah, of course. I, uh, I I look forward to reading your book. I assume you have like addressed this as well as many other things. What would you say is one of the most or the main findings in the book? If there is, I mean, there are probably a lot, but is there something that you think would be worth mentioning as a teaser, maybe?
1: Definitely, I, I think that we kind of alluded to that a couple of times here. I think that these kind of The micro decisions Mm. is by far the kind of bearing, you know, the bearing uh, topic of the book. You know, what does that actually mean? Mm. What does it mean that we're making decisions within a split second? Uh, What does it mean that we, you know, uh, what types of decisions are we talking about? It's like this is when you're making a decision to buy something, that's the end line of a lot of other types of micro decisions and how can we understand them, how can we measure them, and how can we affect those decisions? So what I introduce in the book is uh, four steps, as I mentioned before. Attention, emotion, cognition, and memory. And if you can nail it in these orders, if you can measure it, understand and affect it in these different four steps, you are dramatically in a different place yeah. uh, as a product owner, as a designer. If that's a website, if that's an ad, if it's a packaging or a product, All these four, they work again and again and again. We've tried this for more than 10 years now with uh, companies like anything from Google and Meta to, you know, Estee Lauder, L'Oreal, you name it. All these, you know, credit cards, it's like it works on all these different things. So if you can nail it on those four, um, then you're much more likely to get people's attention, get consumers' attention, relevant attention, you're much more likely to be understood, your messaging is understood, and you're much more likely to be preferred and cho- chosen. And you know what what I also mean by that is not it's not kind of tricking people. You actually make people more happy with the choices as well.
0: Yeah. And you guide them maybe easier through the process.
1: We're much more happy with choices that we feel emotionally for, yeah, right? Yeah. If it feels right to buy it, an, then you're more happy brain. with it, right? Yeah. If it's a rational choice, yeah, you can't rationalize yourself to any every choice. No, it still needs to feel
0: right. Yeah, I think especially women could like really need help in that area. Because I mean, I, I think we make a lot of, let's say irrational choices when it comes to shopping. I think it's also a tendency which is kind of normal where you click I'm gonna buy this and then you regret it. Like you have this little time span afterwards where you regret it. Uh, So I assume that's also a, a part of this journey or it's
1: it's part of you can actually use this and we've done it i had a couple of phd students who studied uh pathological gambling and shopaholism right so we we what we found was that you can use this same four part model to kind of diagnose the problem so to speak it's like what we see is that it's the actual hunt that's the most you know Basically, the brain is a prediction machine. Mm -hmm. So, what it basically is trying to do is like, is this going to be good? Is this going to be good? It's seeking, 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 seeking. It finds it. And then at the time that you're swiping the card, the game is over. Yes. Right? You're coming home? Nah. Mm -hmm. Doesn't really mean anything. Right? So, it's actually the prediction, the expectation. That's where all the fun is. And we see this again and again. The analogy I use is that let's say you go to your favorite restaurant, uh, you order your favorite dish of food. By far, the biggest emotional driver for you is when you sit there, you know, selecting and ordering and waiting for the food. When the food arrives, it's not really that you know. That's not the biggest thing.
0: Yeah, that's when you go on Instagram and post your food before you eat it, right? Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Would you say there is a cultural difference in these mechanisms?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I think that the mechanisms are not cultural uh, dependent. So, you know, we have tested this across the board. We recently did a study. That was in Iran, it was in Guatemala, it was in Brazil, the US, and Denmark. And we see that across the board, people respond in the same way. Um, We try this for how people respond on social media, for example, as well. People tend to respond in the same way, but there might be cultural influences of what drives those responses. So, uh, a good example being if people are, if you look at perfume, for example, if you don't have musk in your perfume in the Arab Arab countries, then you can forget about it. Yeah. If you have too much musk in it in Asia, you know, forget about it. They're yeah. not gonna like it. So there are cultural drivers that depending on what people are used to and been exposed to and things like that but then how people respond can still be using that kind of four-step micro decision model. yeah
0: okay so it's basically the elements surrounding the the decision process that that vary we we all have the
1: same brains yeah right and the thing is that we don't i know my book is called cubian or the (laughs) the buyer's brain but it's like it's we don't really have a particular center in our brain that is dedicated to consumer behavior, mm-hmm. right? We still bring the entire brain to work, we bring the entire brain to the shopping mall, we bring the entire brain when we go home, so it's like, it's the same mechanisms. They don't change, it's the same structure, and we all have it across the world, basically. Mm-hmm. But what triggers it is depending on culture, learning, a little bit of, you know, gene, uh, your gene your genetic <laughs> yes. makeup as well, <laughs> so yeah, it's a, it's a good mix.
0: Yeah. What would you say, uh, or how do you think we could take, if we if we call this a, a term or or a phrase, how can we take the customer experience to the next level? If I, if I give you that as an open question, what would your answer be?
1: First will be, uh, what type of customer experience would we talk
0: about? A- an experience where you as a consumer feel satisfied and that you have been guided through a, a process that makes sense uh, if you go through all of these micro decisions. Mm. So you feel you had a good experience and you don't feel that down. You had good, let's say, customer service if it's in a physical store or you had a good UI, UX experience online. Which elements would contribute the best to giving the best uh, c- customer experience? I, I have to
1: say that it depends on the situation. It depends on the type of product. So let's say you uh, What we tried So I'll give you an example. Mm-hmm. We have tried new how people respond to new technology a lot of times we helped for example Google and Microsoft and Facebook in designing virtual and augmented reality devices for example. What we found for these things, but also other types of technologies is that typically people are just overloaded. It's way too much information for people. It's uncertain for them. So as I mentioned before, people don't really like that uncertainty, but if they're motivated, if they have a strong motivation, they get a real true kick out of that. So that means that, you know, that acts like a buffer for them so they can take on any challenge. That means that if people have that extra motivation, they they will be early adopters of that technology. If they don't, they will leave it alone, never to touch it again. So, if that's new technology, you need to have that. You need to pump them up. with are a lot of motivation, and they need to kind of understand and really be high expectation. As a kind of mm-hmm. almost like shopaholics, if you like, oh, yeah. I really need this. Right, good expectation. That would be one thing. If I'm in a different mode, if I'm in a solution mode, I just need to go by the store. I need to just pick up some goods on my way home and I'm out of time and I'm tired. You know, low friction just make it as fluent as possible. If I can just basically, you know, the thing for me, ultimately, instead of going into a store, if I could just say, hey, by the way, can you just, uh, you know, uh, I would like to have a, this and this and this and product made ready for me and yeah. just drive by the store, pick it up and pay. Yeah. That'll be ultimate, you know, yeah. instead of going into the store and picking it up, finding it myself, forget about it. Yeah. So it depends on the situation, but what typically is is that friction and flow yeah. is a good guiding principle, uh, principle and then the expectation phase. If you can boost people's expectation of the product, then that's by far the winner. It's like you sure you need to deliver on your promises, but if you can guide people to that expectation, you know, um, Apple when they have their events, right? Especially when Steve Jobs was on stage, right? There's a lot of expectations. He delivered on those and he exceeded expectations, but still there was a lot of expectation. That is by far the best way to go.
0: Yeah, and maybe he didn't even have to deliver on the expectation part because the brand could carry like the weight of... Yeah, but all. you can do
1: that too much though. Yeah. It's like you have to deliver most of the time. Right? Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, true. Yeah,
1: but it, it, definitely you need to have, you know, um, this is the, a model I created with uh, with a couple of uh, professors at uh, INSEAD, the, the, the business school in Paris, and then... University of Michigan, I think she is uh, still, but um, we had kind of four different steps that there's an expectation phase, there's a prediction phase, there's an experience phase of the product and there's a memory phase of the product. So we find again and again that the more people have a strong prediction or an expectation Mm -hmm. of the outcome, the more they expect and anticipate something for the product. stronger the effect will be so you know if you can work up people's expectations without overdoing it there's a fine balance there but that and that can be built into you know um it doesn't need to be a kind of an iphone event it can also be just you know the crackling of a chips bag
0: yeah
1: that is an expectation in itself because if you hear that crackling of a chips bag you're like yeah i'm looking forward to eat that right so micro expectations also work
0: yeah Maybe we should make a smell-a-vision and, you know, touchy vision. I don't even know what yeah, you Yeah, I think that.
1: that as we go digital, we are losing that element.
0: Yeah.
1: And things that, you know, even the weight of a product has, has an effect yeah. on how we perceive a product, right? Yeah. And we lose that. Definitely. We need to think in other terms when we think digitally.
0: Yeah, I think that's the that's the like the positive thing of the digital. You you can actually leave that out because the whole process is smoother mm. than having to go to the physical store. And having mm. to find the things, you have a better overview. Mm. You have a search function instead of having to find someone. You can ask for help. Um, and maybe I mean, uh, do you see like AI or maybe even IoT devices? playing a crucial role in the physical environment as well Um, because i think if we take like a clothing store for example Mm -hmm. you lose a lot of the customers in the changing room area Mm -hmm. because it's too crowded because you can't find the help you need because you can't find the size you need you have to go out again or it's too hot or it's too cold do you think there are some maybe other things or, I don't know, take Let's take, uh,
1: yeah, let's take uh, clothing as an example, yeah. right? I think we're currently at the verge of a revolution in the clothing industry. So we, we see already now that there are certain uh, apps that are coming now that you, you basically hold it up. You can do a selfie or you can do this with glasses or with clothing and it pops on the clothes for you or the shoes for you, right? Sure, you can make that. Technologically, it, it works fine, right? The question is, how should you design the experience? Because imagine now, you have two different providers. that one provider is like you put, uh, you put the uh, let's say for shoes, trying on shoes, right? You hold the the phone and you you uh, you uh, to, um, take on the, the digital shoes if you like, and yeah. they just pop up, right? Yeah. The other provider, you do it, and there's almost like a reveal moment. Uh So you unpack it. It's like like dressed on your foot or whatever, or it comes with a jingle or something like that. It's a different experience, right? It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. You're still tying on the shoes, but you have these reveal moments. Mm -hmm. And I think that as people get more more aware of these kind of design moments, these kind of micro decisions, people would understand that it's the, the entire experience needs to be designed as well. Then we can use that. As we lose this kind of, you know, when you try shoes on in store, you can try it out, you can bend it, you can try the weight of it and stuff like that. You lose that, but then we need to supplement. We need to yeah. kind of supply or, you know, replace that with something else in the digital realm. Mm-hmm. Typically sound is good. We can have maybe some kind of physical kind of vibration when the shoe is on, for yeah. example. So think about that as well.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Do you have anything you would like to add that I have not asked you about? No. <laughs> I think mm-hmm. I actually like um, got all the way through this.
1: Yeah, and then some. I think we got uh, pretty yeah. well through. Um, no, I think that um, I think the, 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 any listener to this interview is probably, mm-hmm. there's a lot of information, but I think that uh, the first thing is always to you know seek out the information you know hopefully they can read my book that's one thing uh it's coming in in english at the end of this year as well so let me say more people can read it um but beyond that it's like experiment try stuff out you know seek out information try stuff out see what sticks be a scientist almost about it and and listen to the evidence you mm-hmm. know, if you you might have your personal favorite that you have to listen to, you know, do people actually like it yeah. as you thought they would yeah. and kill your darlings. <laughs> it's like the whole dictum, of you know, kill your ideas. It's You yeah. have to challenge that.
0: Yeah. And stop acting out of principle. Maybe yeah. yep. that yep. would be a good advice, I think, and yep. end up <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> or round up the conversation. Thank you so much, Thomas. Thank you very much. It was much. a pleasure. And the book is out on the 14th of October in Danish. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our first ever podcast. We really hope you enjoyed it and stay tuned for more chats like this. Until then, make sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms where you can stay updated on the company and also the releases for all upcoming podcasts.